Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the It's Going podcast. My name is Isaac. I'm Susie. And with us, we have a special guest, Bardia, the Stop Drinking Coach. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Yeah. What's up, everybody? <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks for listening. My name is Bardia Rez. I'm the Stop Drinking Coach, Sobriety Coach, and uh, yeah, excited to be here and looking forward to a really great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Us too. We... Uh, we obviously have seen a lot of your stuff on social media. You're on TikTok and uh, Instagram, and then uh, you have a, your own podcast as well. Um, why don't you start by just telling us kind of what got you into all that? Kind of give us a little bit of your your story. <clears throat> yeah, um, yeah. So how I got into being the the stop drinking coach. Um, really, I mean, the story goes back all the way to my childhood and kind of my family and growing up um, in a pretty dysfunctional family with my dad being an alcoholic um, and really just growing up in a really kind of crazy dysfunctional environment, ultimately leading to him passing away from alcohol poisoning um, in his sleep when I was 14. Um, I then developed a problematic relationship with alcohol myself pretty much the first time I picked up um, uh, a drink, I became a binge drinker. Um, I was never the type who could just have one or two. As soon as I had one sip, the switch would flip inside me where I would just have this intense craving to keep drinking. It's kind of like alcohol is almost like cocaine for me. It's like, I get this really intense euphoria and dopamine rush, and then it drops off. And then that drop off feeling is this intense sort of anxiety to keep wanting to consume. So you know, started drinking at 14 or 15 around uh, sophomore year uh, in, in high school when I started going to parties. What's interesting is before then, you know, having seen what alcohol and addiction had done to my family, I told myself I would never go near it. Uh, but, you know, naturally, I get into high school and I'm around these social environments where everyone's drinking. Um, and, and so I pick it up myself. Um, and, and an interesting part of the story that I think really contributes to how I got here today is, you know, when my dad passed away, my uncle came down to help with the funeral and he gave me this book by this guy named Wayne Dyer. You guys have ever heard of Wayne Dyer? He's the spiritual mm -hmm. guru, passed away a few years ago, um, has tons of material on YouTube, has written lots of books. And the book he gave me uh, was called You'll See It When You Believe It. And I read that book at 14 years old, and that book introduce, introduces you to the philosophy and concept of consciousness and how your beliefs influence your reality and mindfulness and all these different things. And I read that at 14 years old when, you know, at this really critical point in my life and, you know, at 14, you don't really know your ass from your elbow. You think you do, you know, you're a freshman and, you know, you think you've got it all figured out, but that book completely shifted my paradigm in terms of my consciousness and my relationship to myself and infused this whole new like reality um, that really got me obsessed with this concept of consciousness and mind. And so it led me down this rabbit hole of studying spirituality and philosophy. And, you know, by the time I was 19 or 20, it felt like I had read almost every major personal development book under the sun. And so you know, going into like my teens, what ended up happening was, you know, half of me was like obsessed with alcohol. Like I was this, I was weekend binge drinker and, and heavy partier, relatively high functioning, right? 
Um, and then this other part of me was so obsessed with this concept of personal growth and personal transformation and becoming successful and, you know, creating a, a great life for myself. But I found myself sort of at war internally where um, half of me just was obsessed with alcohol and the other half of me was always trying to get better. You know, I was really into fitness and working out and bodybuilding and all these different things, you know, fast forward. Contrast. Yeah. Contrasting forces. Yeah. Yeah. Just this internal war. And it kind of felt like I was reliving the same week of my life over and over and over again. Fast forward kind of into my 20s. I, I probably went to my first AA meeting when I was like 19. I've probably been to, I don't know, two, 300 AA meetings o- over the years, but never really found AA to be like a, a solution. I never got to the bottom or understood like the, the philosophies were, they just didn't really vibe with me. And so you know, I started trying to get sober at like 19, right? Every time I drank, there was an incredible amount of guilt and shame and pain that came along with it because it's like, dude, I lost my dad to it. And like, I knew that I had so much more potential that I wasn't able to somehow express. And it just, it felt like alcohol was this thing that was, that was siphoning my life force and my energy in my life. And so through my twenties, I tried to quit multiple times. i you know, did the AA deal. I did, you know, had a therapist for a little while. The longest I went was, was about six months when I was 27. And then I ended up drinking, um, one day and right back into the cycle. Um, ultimately, you know, fast forward, you know, pandemic hits. And once that happened, right, the world is in disarray and everybody's worried and working from home. And, you know, I, just run this little online business and I had a little bit of money in the bank. And so I was like, okay, maybe I don't need to work. And so I was just kind of chilling and being stuck at home. You know, I just naturally went from weekend binge drinking to drinking every single day. And as soon as I started to ramp up the frequency, the volume started to also rapidly increase. And eventually I got to drinking about four to six bottles of wine a day with a pack, about a pack of cigarettes a day. And uh, I did that for about six months. And, and during that period, I mean, everything was breaking down physically, mentally, emotionally. I was gaining weight. I mean, it was bad. Um, mm. Ultimately, um, you know, I, I hit this rock bottom experience where a buddy of mine invited me out to the pool and he challenged me to a race. And I've never lost a swimming race in my life against anybody. <laughs> I'm just I'm the fastest swimmer and I don't care what anybody says. And he was like dead set on thinking he could beat me. And I'd been drinking all day and, you know, my ego got in the way. And so, you know, we started racing and I dislocated my left shoulder um, playing high school football um, a couple times, you know, running into some guy that was like twice as big as me. It just ripped me apart. And, um, and so as I'm swimming, I'm about 70% of the way through and I'm ahead of him, ahead of him, by the way, and I'm swimming <laughs> so aggressively, you know, freestyle, I guess, whatever you call it so aggressively, like nobody should be swimming like that after already probably being eight drinks deep. And my left shoulder like rips out of its socket and is like hanging and mangled. And, you know, I get up and it's the most excruciating pain I've quite literally ever been in. And in that moment, that was like my moment of, of coming to, you know, in that moment, I reflected on everything. I reflected on, you know, the last six months of my life. I connected the pain that I was feeling in that moment to alcohol because I recognized had I not been drinking, I wouldn't be in the state. 
who knows what's going to happen? Like, is this thing going to heal? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was 29 at the time and I was about to turn 30 in a few months. And, you know, for me growing up, having that half of me always being focused on growth and becoming better in my potential and right. I had this vision for who I could be at 30 years old, right? We all have these goals at at these different Mm -hmm. stages in our life. I'm going to be a millionaire or I'm going to be married or I'm going to have kids or I'm going to be in this career or whatever it is. Right. And so when I thought about who I imagined myself to be at 30, I realized in that moment that I was a multiverse away. I was a multiverse away, nowhere near the standard of the man I knew I was capable of being. And in that moment, when I was honest with myself, I recognized and and realized and, and, and came to that the reason I'm not there has been because of my relationship with alcohol. You know, during the periods where I wasn't drinking, I was always a stud. I was proactive. I was always hitting the gym. You know, I'm like, I'm on top of my game for the most part. I'm pretty high functioning. But whenever alcohol's, you know, in the, in, in, in the game, every time I take three steps forward, I take two steps back, right? Or every mm. time I hit that point where like, whether it's in my health or my relationships or my career or my finances or whatever, where I have to really break through, I never break through because alcohol yeah. is always getting in the way of my life. And so in that moment, you know, I played the tape forward, which I have a great podcast episode that's helped a lot of people called Play the Tape Forward. I played mm. the tape forward and I imagined if I go into my 30s, like there's no way I'm going to be able to become the version of myself I know I'm capable of being if I continue to drink. Like I tried yeah. every possible which way in my 20s, every which way. And I just, I can't. And so in yeah. that moment, I made what seemed like the, the absolute scariest, most terrifying decision. And that was to quit drinking. Shortly after I started working with this coaching company and um, I immersed myself in their coaching program, went through it. I was, I was working for them, but also going through the program almost as a client. And I went through that system and it helped me stay, stay, not only stay sober, but it helped me radically transform my life mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, in terms of trauma, my nervous system, emotional regulation, mental regulation, like everything. And wow. I worked with them for about 18 months and continued to stay sober through that process. I, I moved from Southern California to Austin a few months after that, that I got sober. And, um, you know, I got to a point working with them where I felt like I really needed this deeper sense of autonomy. Like I was just kind of capped in what I wanted to do. It was just this intuitive calling. And so I left a few months later, I was on TikTok and I got this video in my feed um, from this woman talking about sobriety. And I'd never seen anything around sobriety before on TikTok. Um, My buddy is like, dude, you got to start one. And so I started this TikTok and, you know, I was just posting this personal development mindset type stuff. And it was getting 100 views or 200 views. And then I see this video about sobriety and I go into the comments and there's just a lot of pain. You know, I was in Mm. digital marketing for nine years before I got into coaching. So I saw comment after comment of like, I'm five days alcohol free. I'm on day three. Oh, I just relapsed after two weeks. How did you do it? How did you do it? Pain, 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 pain. And I'm like, huh, there's all these people that need help. And I found a way to finally get sober in a way that's unconventional compared to anything else. And like, I did it. And I know I can help other people do it because I now have a model and a system and tools and strategies and everything else. And so I created this video, super silly video, 
five second video that's like five ways my life got better after quitting drinking. Text, 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 text. Within an hour, that video had 5,000 views. By the end of the day, it had 50,000 views and comments pouring in. I was replying to every person and it just, it really unfolded organically. Um, and so yeah. I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to, you know, I don't have a job anymore. Uh, I left that company. <laughs> I'm looking to do something on my own and create my own deal. Let me just follow the views. It looks like there's traction here. So I started to post more and more content around um, sobriety and alcohol. And incrementally, it just started to take off. By the time I had a thousand followers, which was like a month, I threw up a calendar link in my bio and people just started booking calls with me without even awesome. me asking. There was just a link. And for the first month or two, I was just talking to people. I wasn't selling a program or coaching or anything. And um, yeah, it uh, eventually someone's like, well, how do I work with you? And it all just kind of started from there. You know, 18 months later, um, my podcast has reached over 300,000 people. Um, you know, I've probably over 50 million views between all my content on social media. Um, and, you know, I've helped hundreds personally, if not thousands, um, quit drinking through the podcast. And it's, it's wild how, how it all it's, unfolded. <laughs> sounds That's very awesome. rewarding. Yeah. yeah. That's a, it's pretty, a, like, uh, the moment when you kind of realize that alcohol sort of, uh, or that alcohol was kind of the root of all the things that were causing pain in your life. It, um, it's kind of a, like a wow moment, uh, as I was hearing you explain that I find a lot of similarities and I don't know if you do Isaac with um so part of our podcast has been uh essentially just telling the story of what happened to my husband his dad um in relation to alcohol because he was also very high functional uh high functioning um and and a person that nobody would have ever guessed that that's what happened um and it kind of rapidly escalated very shortly before he died. And, and, you know, we didn't even really know what was going on. So it was a lot to process. Um, but eerily your story sounds very similar to his in terms of just, uh, the binge drinking and having a higher, you know, a higher tolerance, always drinking a little bit more, uh, when he did drink and, and then it sort of eventually, I mean, it was 20 some years for him, but eventually it, um, tipped over into that daily constant drinking um and unfortunately he did also die from an accidental uh alcohol poisoning uh, but he was away from he was on a business trip so um find a lot of similarities which is i think just interesting <laughs> it's part of why we wanted to have you on the podcast but you know yeah. and I, with his story specifically um you know, he he died from a relapse. So he had been sober for for a few months before he had mm -hmm. died. Um, and I guess it'd be interesting to get your perspective uh, on relapses as a whole. Like, uh, um, I think generally, you know, a lot of what I've seen is the consensus is that relapse tends to be a part of recovery. Like it, it happens to almost everybody. Um, and I just wanted to get kind of your opinion on like, um, you know, how do you get past it, it, it when it does happen or, you know, if, if it is at all possible to avoid having a relapse in the first place? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question, man. Um, and I appreciate you guys sharing all this. And I'm so sorry to hear about, you know, your husband and, and your father, mm. you know, um, yeah. 
condolences to you guys and, and your family. Thank you. Thank um, you. <clears throat> yeah, you know, you hear that a lot. Relapse is part of recovery. And um, I think if you just look at the data, I think it's it's safe to say that, right? Like mm -hmm. if um, if this thing was an on-off switch, there would be no addiction. There would be no mm -hmm. problematic behavior. I, lifelong, I, lifelong disease. Yeah, yeah. You know, lifelong, yeah, that's an interesting deal too. Like the whole disease model of addiction and, you know, how people interpret that and what that really means, which we can def definitely talk more about. But it's lifelong in the sense that um, it doesn't matter how long you're sober. If you go back to that problematic drug or, mm -hmm. or behavior, it will turn back into the same thing. You can't go from mm -hmm. addicted, you know, severe alcohol use disorder or drug use to moderation. So in that sense, yeah. if you can call it a disease or an affliction mm -hmm. where you can't go from extreme use back to moderation. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, is it possible to avoid relapse altogether? Maybe depending on the person. And if you set up all the right conditions to support sobriety and living mm -hmm. alcohol free. I just recorded a new podcast that should be coming out in the next couple of days that really digs into this. It's, it's understanding that sobriety and this journey is about committing to a process um, yeah. and not just being focused on the outcome. Everybody who has a problematic relationship with alcohol says, I want to quit drinking, I want to be sober, but they're not doing anything on a day in and day out basis to commit to a process and to set up the conditions that support living alcohol free, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, neurochemically, physically. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that's a, oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think that's a really good point because, uh, I have a family history. So like my sisters dealt with severe addiction, um, to, to substances. I, my brothers had challenges with it. Um, and it, the one thing, like when my sister finally got sober and, uh, you know, there was a lot of shame and a lot of secrecy that came with it. And, and she had, you know, a pretty, a pretty severe path for seven years or something like that. And she, I used to tell her all the time, you know, that, um, it's not about whether you mess up again. It's about whether you have stuff in place to pull yourself out of that. Because I yeah. think that, you know, it's the shame spiral that happens for a lot of people. It's like, oh, I messed up. And, you know, my life sucks. So I might as well just keep messing right. up where, you know, it's not really about the mess up itself. It's about what do you have in place to help, you know, uh, because addiction kind of happens in this vacuum of like isolation and, and mm. shame and all of those things. And so, um, yeah. but I do, I agree with you. I think that there's not really a one size fix all. And, and we definitely have had a cultural kind of focus on like AA and abstinence and certain like things um, that do work for some people, but I think they don't work well enough for a lot of people. Otherwise we wouldn't continue yeah. to have the challenges that we do. And so yeah. I do agree with you. I think that having structure and a plan and, you know, a support system that helps you, um, you know, whether it's to dig in when you're feeling like you want to, or also if you do mess up, you know, how do you come out of that without going down that that shame spiral yeah it's kind of thinking like you know you know you hear it a lot in like aa or maybe just general recovery it's this concept of progress over perfection mm -hmm. right it's mm -hmm. what i always say is you know somebody who let's say is problematic relationship with alcohol say we're not quitting drinking we're learning how to live alcohol free those are two mm -hmm. totally different things 
And learning how to live alcohol free is just that it's a learning process, right? If we've been mm. drinking for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and alcohol has woven its tentacles into the fabric of every part of our life, our time management, you know, what we do in the evenings, our social life, our marital life, uh, our weekends, how we have fun, how we cope, how we manage, how we manage conflict. I mean, everything, right? Like mm -hmm. that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a learning process. It's a readaptation process. And so it's like, Hey, if we're in California and we're trying to drive to Vegas, for example, right. A relapse is like you run out of gas halfway, mm. right? So what's the solution? You go to the nearest gas station and you keep driving forward. You don't have to start back over. And if you were, you know, drinking, six days a week or seven days a week or five days a week, and then you go 90 days and you don't drink and then you relapse. Well, now you've only drinking once out of 90 mm -hmm. days. And before it would have been, you know, you would have drinking uh, 75 or 80 out of those 90 days. So that's tremendous mm -hmm. progress forward. You're learning how to manage your mind. You're learning how to manage your time. You're learning how to manage your emotions. You're learning how to relate to people. You're learning how to have a little bit of fun. You're learning how to cope. And so mm -hmm. what relapse really ultimately is, 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 is what part of the sobriety process have you not learned? Have you not fully accepted? Have you not fully mm -hmm. acknowledged? Have you not fully integrated? Well, I went 120 days, but then I ended up drinking. Okay. So as a sobriety coach, right, or support system, you say, okay, you know, you don't like at this point, I don't look at a relapse as this more shameful, guilty thing that the person who experiences has it, it's very black and white. Just like if you're assessing mm -hmm. business, we rewind the tape to see what were the conditions that um, led to the relapse. Well, mm -hmm. you know, I was with this person in this environment, you know, da, 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 this and that. Okay. What could you have done differently? Could you have um, not hung out with that person? Could you have skipped out? Could you have shown up for an hour and then left? Could you have done this? Could you have done that? Did you apply this tool? Did you apply this strategy? Did you, did you do that? Nope. No, it ended up being this person who I always used to drink with. And I ended up drinking because I was around mm -hmm. them and they peer pressured me. Got it. Yeah. So in that case, right, just like in a business environment, you would say, okay, let's look at the standard operating procedure for being a customer service agent. You need to make sure at point 1.2, you do this to make sure the customer is happy. Similarly, in your sobriety journey, you need to make sure that you commit to not hanging out with that person, at least for another few yeah. months until you have the confidence to know that you can go out into those environments and get through the hour, two hours, three hours and have that confidence and foundation to know that you can get manage whatever sensation is going through your body of intensity, craving, boredom, missing out or the psychological peer pressure. Um, or the social peer pressure of other people drinking around you. And until you learn that thing and fully integrate it, you will continue yeah. to relapse. And so whether That's it's a social thing, whether it's a, I'm lonely or I'm bored or I'm anxious or, you know, it, it, for each and every one of us, it shows up differently. But that's why it's it's such a personal journey because the reason mm. each and every one of us turns to alcohol is going to be slightly different, but ultimately it comes down to either psychological or emotional pain. And that's our human journey, right? Is learning how to move through pain in such a way where we can self-regulate rather than put our psychological and emotional regulation, giving it away to a substance or a behavior. 
Yeah. yeah. I think I think that's very, you know, I, I think kind of the addiction model for most substances is very similar to that exact same thing. And one of the things, uh, f- well, one of the things that you pointed to in one of your videos was that um, oftentimes we turn to certain substances or whatever, especially alcohol, because uh, you see it so often because there's some level of pain in their life. And you and you said you can call it boredom or anxiety or you can call it loneliness or whatever the case may be. But it's some level of pain that you're trying to cover over instead of, you know, as you just said, move through it and, and experience it. And I think I think especially in today's culture, that's so pervasive as well, because we're so used to instant gratification in every aspect of our lives that to sit there with uncomfortable feelings while well, it's uncomfortable and people don't like being uncomfortable. And so they'll do whatever they can. They'll reach for their phone. They'll reach for, you know, whatever little thing that they can to not feel uncomfortable. And well, what does that do to your life long term? You end up not being able to feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, without it being this huge debilitating thing, you know, and then uh, in the terms of relapse too, one of the things that I've noticed uh, you know, just in, in, in my line of work, just in general, too, is is most of the time when you have somebody come in who has relapsed, um, it's because something in there, if they've been sober, especially for a longer period of time, and they relapse, it typically is because something in their structure of what keeps them sober has broken down. You know, so I, I recently had an example. Um, I recently had somebody come in who, uh, who, you know, everything was going well, had been sober for two, three years, um, you know, was with his family and his wife was pregnant. He had a kid on the way. He was doing all the, you know, he he had a job. He was doing really well. And he his his wife was like ready to pop, you know, nine months pregnant, about to have the baby any day. And he relapsed. And um you know, and and after talking to the psychologist and just kind of, you know, talking things out with the family and, and the doctor and me and everything, you know, the root of it ended up being that he, you know, he he said all of the thing we've been so busy and so stressed out uh, with the baby on the way and all of these things that we've been preparing for and with work. I haven't been doing the things that keep me sober. He said, I I haven't been able to go to church. We've been rescheduling all of our meetings of like, you know, coaching and and doing that sort of thing. We've been, you know, unable to meet with my my friends who are also sober and who like keep me in line. All of those things have been breaking down over the last few weeks. And because we've been so busy, so stressed out, babies on the way, all these things. And, 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 you know, and so that was kind of the root cause for him specifically was the 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 fail safes that he had put in place to keep him sober well life was getting so stressful and so busy that he was letting those things slip first yeah well what happens when you do you know you end up turning back to the thing that um the other thing that gets rid of those those pains so like those were healthy coping mechanisms to get rid of whatever pain he was dealing with yeah well those were gone now it's time to lean on the crutch Mm-hmm. I think too that um you talk about this in one of your videos um about how uh the um that sorry okay sorry um you were talking about how it's just really part of like really 
I think part of the challenge with alcohol specifically, so like drugs, you know, I think there's a, a slight difference, not difference in the way that they act, right? Like, so you can addiction to alcohol and addiction to drugs are the same thing um, in terms of how your body, you know, processes them and and what it does to your system and all of that. But I think the difference is, and, and Isaac and I have touched on this before and, and where alcohol becomes really insidious is that it's so socially acceptable. It's such a totally. part of our social culture and our fabric. Um, and you t- you did a couple of videos on that too. I mean, tell us a little bit about like what you see or what your thoughts are and, and why alcohol seems to be maybe more challenging for the average person. Yeah, good question. I mean, it, it really does come down to that social thing, right? Like human beings are social creatures. The worst thing that you can do to a human is to isolate them, right? To put them in solitary confinement. So we need that social connection, right? And so the way the system is set up, this matrix, government, like the the whole deal, right? Is it set up in such a way where the human being like really gets little choice. Human beings are predictive modeling systems. We learn by consuming data. And that data forms the basis of our consciousness and our perception and identity and how we process, right? So we go through a system that is set up through with the government, the school systems, advertising, um, product placement, promotion, commercials, um, structural like hierarchies where you go through school, you get into college, you know, high school, college. And the culture around socializing and connecting is fueled by alcohol, right? And so you almost don't get a choice. I mean, there are certain people who go through the system and don't really drink that much, but it's almost mm-hmm. forced upon you. It's, it's, it's socially accepted. And you carry that on into your 20s and into your 30s. And you then form connections and relationships with other people that without you really realizing it are actually founded upon you guys connecting through a drug right Mm -hmm. and so when then and and so what also is happening through these very very formative years with your brain developing your values developing your identity developing your perception of self developing your time management developing how you have fun how you connect how you spend your free time all of these things are woven together with alcohol, mm-hmm. right? Socially. And so when you go to quit drinking, um, you know, what happens? Like all of those things for the last, let's say if you quit at 30 for the last 15 years of your life, all of those thousands of memories, right? Mm-hmm. All the meeting people for the first time going on dates, what you do every Friday, Saturday and Sunday, right? What you do on Tuesday, what you do with your coworkers, it all Mm -hmm. revolves around alcohol. And so when you finally get to this place and you recognize, hey, this thing isn't working, like it's not doing what it used to do. I'm a slave to this thing now and it's causing way more harm than it is benefit. You Mm -hmm. then go to quit. But now we're in this system where, you know, 80% of human beings, 90% of human beings um, are, you know, dependent on this thing really by maybe no choice of their own, simply because Mm -hmm. of environmental factors, societal factors, um, and, and everything else. And that makes it tough, right? It means you might have to let go of some friends. It means Mm -hmm. that you have to find new ways to stimulate yourself or to release energy and stress built up from work on a Friday or Saturday. You have to figure out, you know, what you can tangibly do 
to have fun or to socialize or all these other things without this thing. And man, it's like you've been doing something for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. It's not easy, especially when this thing, I mean, dude, it is, it is cellular at that point. You're (laughs) thinking about it. You're craving it. You know, you feel bored without it. You feel sad without it, depressed without it, you know, and then socially everybody, you know, or most of the people, you know, are partaking. And sure, are there good times? Absolutely. That's why we all love alcohol and we continue to go back to it because in the moment, very temporarily, it does feel good. It does provide pleasure. It does Mm -hmm. relieve stress. It does do the thing that you want it to do, but it follows up with such a downstream series of negative consequences that, you know, it it just becomes this, it's this dichotomous, difficult, you know, thing to, 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 to manage and get through. And that's why, you know, having a program, having structure, having accountability, support, and ensuring that you put all these different conditions in place um, to support this kind of transition process. Really, it's a metamorphosis process. Um, transformation process is, is so, so important. Why do you think it's so hard for people? Uh, I have my own theories on this, but like, why do you think it's so hard specifically? I mean, any addiction is going to be difficult, but even for people that maybe aren't classically addicted to alcohol, there's a lot of fear around bringing or taking alcohol out of the equation. Um, So why do you think it's so difficult for people to really stop with alcohol specifically? I think it's several reasons. One, ultimately overcoming any addiction is this journey of learning how to move through discomfort. It's Mm -hmm. redefining your relationship to pain, right? I mean, that you synthesize every 300 TikTok videos I have, every podcast. Overcoming our addictions is a process of redefining our relationship to pain, increasing our tolerance and capacity to handle pain, and ultimately redefining and reorienting our life as a human being, right? Like life is hard, right? We got to go to work. We got to make money. We got to pay bills and taxes and plan for our future. And we got to find a mate and we got to have kids and buy a house and do all these different things. And so it's like, People are afraid of, of, of several things. One, um, they're afraid of having to feel and move through pain, right? We all experience tremendous amounts of trauma through our childhood. It doesn't matter if you have a perfect family or not. The sensitive developing brain of a child and the very limited small window of the nervous system of a child, everybody experiences trauma, whether it's at home or on the playground or at school mm-hmm. or with their friends, which negatively affects their perceptions identity, their nervous system goes into fight or flight the way like nobody actively generally learns coping mechanisms and strategies, right? (laughs) So by letting go of the alcohol, we're now letting go of the thing, like the primary coping mechanism. And that's scary. Mm. How do I deal with my social anxiety? I've never socialized with anyone without alcohol for 15 years. How do I manage the voice in my head that tells me, you know, uh, I'm not worth it or I'm not good enough, right? What am I supposed to do to manage like wanting more in life, but not having the confidence or self-esteem to put in the work to develop new skills to be able to get to that next level of my life where I could earn more or have more freedom? So mm-hmm. it's this it's giving up this alcohol for any person could represent this this point of having to go face to face and toe to toe with a lot of pain, pain from our past 
pain from our childhood, pain from our parents, pain from just the voice inside of our head. So that's mm. for sure one reason. The second one is when you remove alcohol, you are kind of forced to confront your humanity. When you don't get to mm. just run and numb out from stress and frustration and overwhelm and whatever, you got to be like, dude, what am I doing here? Yeah. I've got 50, 60, 70 years left to live. What's my life? What's my purpose? Who am mm. I? It's really easy to not have to go toe to toe and answer the big questions when two to three days a week, you feel like you're on cloud nine. And then you mm -hmm. do enough to get by and your needs are met and things are okay and you feel like you're making progress, but the real deep philosophical existential things, like you can kind of put those things on the back burner and cruise by. And that's yeah. really scary for people, right? Yeah. And then the, the third piece is, is like, why is it so hard to quit drinking? Um, dude, it, it takes a lot of courage you know, that maybe yeah. a lot of people haven't developed within themselves to go against the crowd, to go against mm -hmm. the crowd, to do something different, right? It takes a tremendous amount of like confidence and, and like willingness and belief in yourself to be like, hey, I'm going to exit what seems like a societal matrix and I'm going to mm -hmm. jump into the deep end on the other side and see if I can figure out something new in which I don't even know what's out there. Yeah. Do you feel like too, I feel like a lot of times people, there's also a lot of pressure. So like, I don't, I think in general, it seems like culturally and just socially, um, when someone says sure. they're not drinking alcohol, there's a lot of like backlash in some ways, you know, you would think that like most people would be like, oh, great, you're doing something, you know, that's, you know, going to help you reach your goals and be good for you. But for some reason, when it comes to like alcohol, there's definitely a, uh, stigma around that and stopping alcohol totally. is like there's something wrong with you or um you're not going to be yeah. fun anymore or <laughs> yeah well that goes into just human like society's severe like lack of understanding and, and education of alcohol in the first place like the way yeah. alcohol and alcoholism is painted in our society is either you're the person who could drink whenever they want come and go and please uh, as they please and handle your thing or you're the guy who is drinking out of a brown paper bag, pissing himself at, at you know, on the bus stop <laughs> at 7 a.m. And so as monkey see, no monkey between. do, yeah, there's no in between. As these simple monkey see, monkey do creatures, we're like, hmm, okay, as long as I'm not that guy, whatever else I am, I'm okay. It's fine. And yeah. so you've got, you know, if you Google number of people who have alcohol use disorder, the data says 10%, but I'm absolutely convinced that that number is a lie. I and agree. I, agree. I would agree. Nonsense. You know, it's probably closer to like 30% or 40% or yeah. maybe even more. So there's a tremendous amount of people who are on the spectrum of alcohol use disorder, mm -hmm. but don't recognize it or are in denial. And, um, you know, again, being those social creatures, it's like all of a sudden your buddy or your best friend or your, you know, somebody you really bonded with and have tons of mm -hmm. memories and connection around all of a sudden says, Hey, I'm, I'm no longer doing this thing. Um, really the, the pressure is what it actually is, is it's a trigger to their own relationship to alcohol mm. and their yeah. mirror is being held up and you know, they don't want to lose that person. And so they're trying to reel them back in because, Hey, mm -hmm. if this person exits the system, now I'm alone drinking. 
And, um, you know, what does that say about me? <laughs> what does that say about me? And, and right. mm-hmm. down intuitively, every single person who drinks knows that they're damaging themselves. Everybody feels mm-hmm. the consequences. Everybody gets hung over. Everybody has brain fog. Everybody says stupid things or dumb things or acts a fool mm-hmm. at some point. And so nobody is getting out unscathed. It's like this yeah. pink elephant in the room where everybody's doing it and continues to do it. Um, but in a way is in like this denial around what's actually happening. Yeah. That's well, interesting. I think, I think too, on that front, um, oftentimes, you know, there's that judgment of like, like what you said, the, the guy with the paper bag out in public who's, who's intoxicated and whatever. And it's like, as long as I'm not that guy, I'm good. But then there's also this level of judgment of, Oh, you had to stop drinking. That means you were that guy. Right. You know, right. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you, couldn't so, handle, so, you couldn't handle your you booze. Couldn't handle it. You're weak minded. Yeah. You have no self control. Yeah. Just stop after three. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they try to convince yeah. you that you don't have a problem. And they're like, dude, you're fine. Right. And yeah, you can <laughs> just have a drink. One drink's yeah. not going to be that big of a deal. Two, you know, yeah. whatever. Or, and then I also like that point. And I was going to bring up kind of the same thing of, of it holds up a mirror to people. So when people, you know, when you start doing something that's against the status quo and then and then, you know, and you provide your reasons or whatever, people don't like that because then they have to look at themselves. It, it's it, it seems counterintuitive that something you're doing would reflect badly on that. But yeah. when it's something like that of, oh, I'm going to I'm giving up alcohol because it's going to make me feel better. It's going to make me perform better. I'm going to, you know, safeguard my health and all of these other things. Well, then the person who is like, well, I don't want to give up alcohol because I, you know, I enjoy drinking on the weekends. I enjoy going out with my friends. How am I going to socialize without it? You know, all those questions start to go through through their head. And so they say, hold on a minute. Like, you need to come back and join the party. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. It's almost like, you know, akin to you have a social circle and everybody is 400 pounds. And one person says, hey, like. I think I'm tired of being 400 pounds and, you know, eating McDonald's for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I think I'm going to go hire a personal trainer and lose some weight. And so mm-hmm. everybody, the other four people are looking at him and saying, what are you crazy? What? You think you're yeah. better than us? What you think? Yeah, you think, you know, what you can't handle eating. You can't handle eating uh, McDonald's all day. McDonald's tastes great. Why would you want to go be uh, in shape? And it, it's yeah. like yeah. kind of the same. Deal. I think I think that's kind of the crux of it is. Oh, you think you're better than us? A lot of people have that mentality. It's a weird complex. And it's a weird judgment, too, of like, why does what one person does in their own life have to affect you in that way? Right? Like, what is wrong? They know. They know Mm -hmm. that, hey, I'm turning to this thing to cope. And they like, no, nobody is in that much delusion to know that their relationship with alcohol is somehow working healthy positive and superior like they know deep down they're going to the liquor store and buying a six-pack and they know they're a slave to it and so yeah i think that's deep that's an interesting factor as well because i think like you know if i think about my own relationship with alcohol i don't i don't drink super often it's pretty rare at this point um but it never occurs to me if someone else is not drinking that it's a problem, you know, like it just is like, oh, OK, no big deal. Like, you know, life is fine whether someone wants to have an alcoholic beverage or not. But I have seen 
over time in, you know, relationships that I've had and friend groups. And, you know, even as, you know, my husband struggled with it over time, um, that there very much is that pressure of like, you know, uh, people have a problem if you don't want to drink alcohol. And, and it makes sense that it would be a mirror um, that if you deep down feel like maybe you need to question your relationship with alcohol, you don't want to have somebody else, you know, showing up and, and, you know, putting that mirror right in front of you. Um, do you think that people can have quote unquote healthy relationships with alcohol? Yeah. Isaac and I were, were kind of talking about in the beginning about that before you hopped on. Um, you know, if you listen to Dr. Andrew Huberman, he says there is no healthy relationship with alcohol because mm -hmm. alcohol is a toxic poisonous substance. Ethanol gets converted to acetaldehyde and acetaldehyde is a class one carcinogen, which mm. destroys scale cells, proliferates various different types of cancer and is a 100% absolute net negative in your body. So there's no such thing as a healthy uh, mm. relationship with the consumption of a substance that degrades um, every facet of this avatar that we inhabit. So um, that's, that's one way to think about it. The mm -hmm. other way to think about it um, is, you know, if you are going to partake in a substance, because every adult has a, the right to choose how, you know, they manage their consciousness and, and operating system, you, you for sure want to make sure that if you are partaking in it, you have absolute control and management over it, right? And you mm -hmm. recognize that it's, you, you recognize that you, you have control, you're mindful of, of use, you respect the relationship of it, um, and you're, you stay mindful of the trend. The thing about mm -hmm. alcohol that people don't really realize is um, there's this like conception that like, oh, I'm not an addict. I don't have addictive tendencies. Nobody in my family was an addict and I can stop at one or two. And sure, you know, I've worked with hundreds of people and I would say, you know, over 60% of them, many of them are 40, 50, 60 or so years old. And many of them had a regular relationship with the alcohol in their 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. But then they had that divorce or that death in the family or COVID. And so they went from this totally controlled, take it or leave it relationship. I'll have one or two here and there, a couple times a year, whatever, to then moving into the state where frequency and volume slowly but surely started to increase. And when that happens, anybody is susceptible of developing alcohol use disorder. Because what we're talking yeah. about here is the reward center and our neurochemistry and oscillating mm -hmm. between this pain pleasure cycle. So I yeah. think, um, can you have a healthy relationship with alcohol? Sure. In the sense that yeah. you are very mindful and controlled and do it intentionally. Um, but I think it's important for everybody to recognize that when you're dealing with any substance or behavior that impacts your neurochemistry so heavily, you're walking down a somewhat of a slippery slope. And it's like, yeah. It's one of those things that once you cross that invisible line, that invisible mm -hmm. line is different for everybody. And it takes for some people, I crossed it the very first time I picked up alcohol. Some people, yeah. it takes 30 years to cross it. Once you cross that invisible line, there really go isn't back. going back to that mm -hmm. moderate thing. And when everybody yeah. realizes that they cross it, that's the journey of getting sober. 
is yeah. trying to find every possible which way to manage it, to go back to moderation. And people will try to moderate while staying in a cycle of alcohol use disorder for years or decades before they finally get to the mental, emotional, spiritual place where they get on their knees and say, I can't moderate. I just, it's a binary system. Either I have it in, in my body and it's a virus that consumes me, or I step into a new chapter and I figure out a way to, to live without it and thrive without it. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that Isaac and I have said quite a bit on this podcast is just that alcohol is very insidious compared to uh, a lot of other chemicals or drugs that people use in the sense that I think we've all grown up with a healthy fear of most drugs or at least a cautionary, you know, mm. perspective around it, um, because it seems that a lot of people, you know, with their very first time, you know, are sucked into that not being able to control it. And so mm. there's a healthy, you know, caution around that. But alcohol, because it is such an integral part of our social fabric, it it's and it's legal. That's the big thing. It's legal. It's yeah. it's an accepted uh, a drug in a sense that people uh, don't have that same sense of caution around it. And it is really insidious because I would agree that, you know, even if we look at um, Eric, you know, managed it all of his life until seven months before he died. And it tr crossed over that line for him. Um, and uh, and I think, too, that like, yeah, people kind of have that perception of if I don't fall in that brown bottle, you know, the bagged bottle, you know, sloppy, you know, passed out, uh, you know, Unable category. To control myself. Yeah. yeah. It's not a problem. I remember specifically when I had to sit down with uh, Eric's family and, and tell them what happened and, and what led up to his death and what he actually died from, which was a, a blood alcohol level of 0.45. Um, oh. I remember very specifically his dad just could not wrap his brain around the fact that this was the case because he's like, but I, I know people that are alcoholics and we had to, right. you know, pick them up and throw them in the back of the car. They couldn't even walk. They were peeing themselves. They were like, mm -hmm. it, it just, his concept of his son just was like, this, this does not fit that narrative. And it didn't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he still had just as much of a challenge uh, with his alcohol consumption, which ultimately ended badly. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that 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 just goes to show like our generalized conception of those who struggle with addiction or alcoholism is is it's out of touch from what mm. reality like actually is. And like, yeah, it's addiction is this ongoing process of rationalizing, right? Mm -hmm. It's oh, well, if you, the, the addict will always rationalize. So if they're drinking mm -hmm. five drinks at 6 p.m., well, at least I'm not starting at noon. But once they start start at noon, then it's well, I don't. I there's five hours. I don't drink right when I wake up, right? And then once yeah. you drink right when you wake up, there's another rationalization. Well, I still have a good job, and I'm my there's bills are mm -hmm. still being paid, right? Well, my wife still hasn't divorced me, right? So <laughs> that that is like the addicted brain is always finding some loophole to rationalize, you know getting that substance or behavior yeah. or, or changing the way that you feel. Yeah. You talk a lot about in your content, you talk a lot about the dopamine cycle in relation to alcohol and the, and the neurophysics and the neuroscience behind it. Um, I think it'd be great to hear uh, kind of that process explained because I think 
it's and again it's very related to a lot of consumption of of any drug or something that alters your neurochemistry but i i don't think that people really have a good grasp you know isaac and i we work in the medical field we're an emergency room nurses we deal with this stuff on a you know and we do a lot of study around a lot of that stuff so like you know we have a good concept of how that relationship works or how it affects the neurochemistry but i think in general majority of people don't really understand how these substances affect your brain chemistry and why they become so easy to be addicted to. Yeah. So I'd love to have you explain that here because you do it a lot in your content and I think it's great. Yeah. I think understanding the neurochemistry as it relates to this stuff is so, so important. Like part of a lot of my content that's gone really viral and has like helped a significant amount of people has been by helping them understand the neurochemistry. Because when you're in addiction or you're deep in alcohol and you have no idea why you keep going back despite you know, all the downstream consequences and telling yourself, once you understand the neurochemistry piece, it all starts to make sense. You realize you're not psychotic or insane or broken. So what's important to understand is that like neurochemistry runs our life, right? Like everything we do is in pursuit of neurochemistry. And the balance of your neurochemistry, your oxytocin, your serotonin, GABA, dopamine, like adrenaline, right? Like determines how you feel in any moment, right? The reason you pursue love and romantic relationships is that is for that feeling of oxytocin. The reason mm-hmm. you try to be a good person and, and productive member of society is for that boost in serotonin. The reason you work out is for that boost in dopamine and serotonin. So everything, like it's like this there's like dimensions to reality, but everything is in pursuit of neurochemistry, right? And so alcohol is like this Trojan horse and people don't recognize how much it, it, it affects our neurochemistry. So, and, and before that, let me preface this off by saying, and I talked about this in my last pop, podcast, is everything we do as human beings is the, the two underlying drivers of everything all of it. There's nothing outside of this. These are the two Hmm. points of the spectrum. Everything is either in pursuit of pleasure or in the avoidance of pain. Every thought that we have, Hmm. every action that we take, all of it, all of it. Nothing can fall outside of the pursuit of pleasure or the avoidance of pain, right? And so this is what reality oscillates between. And so... For example, and in, in, in to, to understand like the specifics. So on average, your brain has about 50 nanograms per deciliter of dopamine. Okay. And this is where you're just kind of present, neutral in, in, in the moment. Now, if you go to work one day and they're like, hey, economy is a little bit crazy. We need to make some cutbacks. We're going to have to let you go. It'll drop your dopamine from about 50 to 40. So imagine how bummed you would be, right? Like, you're, you're losing about 10 points of dopamine. And dopamine is, is the neurotransmitter that's responsible for pleasure and reward and kind of that feeling of euphoria and satisfaction. Motivation. Our, what was that? Motivation as well. Motivation. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Motivation. And so um, throughout our history, our evolution as human beings, you know, before cell phones and technology and all this stuff, dopamine would generally only be secreted and produced um, in response to something that was good for our survival. Progress Mm. forward towards the acquisition of resources, finding an apple tree, pursuing a mate, and then getting the mate and procreating with them. 
right? So things that were good for us would increase dopamine, which would send a signal to say, hey, this feels good. Do more of that. It's good for survival. And anything that produces dopamine is by nature self-reinforcing. So the brain sends a signal to, to say, hey, what, whatever action or behavior preceded the increase of feeling good, do more of that because this is good for mm -hmm. survival. So the brain sits at about 50 nanograms per deciliter of dopamine. If you get fired from your job, you drop to 40, right? That you feel bummed. If you're clinically depressed and you can't lift your head off the pillow or go to the bathroom, you can't get out of bed, you're, they say you're at a 10, really low. Mm. On the flip side, when you're having sex or you're eating your favorite food, which are basically two of kind of the peak experiences that life naturally provides for us, your dopamine about doubles to about 95 or, mm. or 100, right? So you get a double, doubling of your baseline. Imagine eating a bunch of sugar, you know, really nice pizza out of the <laughs> oven, whatever it is, or, or having sex, right? Now, when you drink alcohol, it increases dopamine up to 190 to 200. So you wow. are like doubling your dopamine, right? And so you're getting this kind of really unnatural feeling of kind of reward and, and pleasure. And so this reward system in your brain, it's jackpotting. It's like you're putting a dollar in and getting 100 out with no effort. You didn't have to work hard. You didn't have to pursue a mate. You didn't have to make sacrifices. You didn't have to learn new skills to, to get an upgrade and earn, a, earn a, a raise. It's just instant. You're hacking the system that biologically mm -hmm. over years requires effort to feel this sense of pleasure, motivation, and satisfaction, right? And as human beings, we're always looking for shortcuts. That's, that's just we want the shortest distance between point A and mm -hmm. point B to get to our goals, right? And so um, the, the, now the brain is always trying to maintain this level balance, right? It's like, it's like a teeter totter. And Dr. Anna Lemke talks about this in her book, Dopamine Nation. She's got a lot of really good content on YouTube. If mm. you want to learn more about dopamine. So what goes up must come down. So if you tip the side in, in neurochemistry, if you tip a huge increase in dopamine, before it comes back down to that baseline level of 50, let's say it's going to tip to the equal and opposite direction. So the next day, mm. that's why you feel really unmotivated and all you want to do is sit around and watch Netflix. You're skipping the hike that you promised your buddy you'd go on. You're, you're not taking care of your responsibilities. You don't feel that motivation. Now with repeated exposure to, um, and so what happens when you're in the state of pain, naturally you want to escape it. Let's go have that mm. filthy cheeseburger. Let's go get an energy drink. Let's drink some coffee, right? We're always operating and oscillating between pain and pleasure. So when you end up in this pain state, you're now that much more motivated to escape it and to get back into pleasure. Well, you're conditioning yourself to recognize, hey, I can experience an instant relief from pain without having to self-regulate. And I can start to feel really, really good by going to the store and paying $5 and getting a six pack. Hmm, that seems like mm. an easy shortcut, right? You do that for years and years and years. You're now training your system. Why would I put in real effort and real work to feel reward and to grow in life and to earn the things that I want to earn and to manage my mind and to manage my emotions when I could just instantly with no effort go to the store and exchange for, for this feeling, right? And so, um, and where tolerance comes in is, you know, eventually after repeated exposure to alcohol with enough mm -hmm. frequency and, and volume, your baseline level of dopamine of 50 starts to lower because your brain's like, oh, well, I'm getting all this exogenous 
production from, you know, the substance that I'm consuming or endogenous production from this exogenous substance I'm consuming. Um, so eventually your, your, your dopamine sits at a 49. And then after another year, it's at a 48 and then at 45. And then by the time you're 35 and you've been drinking pretty heavily three, four days a week, um, your natural baseline level of dopamine sits at 40. And so when you're not mm -hmm. drinking alcohol, it's like the TV being turned up to a three volume. And that three volume is this background level of dissatisfaction. Nothing's mm -hmm. like that fun or that exciting or that motivating, or you don't really like your buddies are like, Hey, do you want to go do this? But they're not going to be drinking. So it doesn't sound that interesting. And so the only thing that you condition this operating system, the only thing that takes you up is alcohol because nothing else in normal everyday to day life right. gives you that sense of presence and connection and motivation and reward and satisfaction. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we, it, yeah. it, it all comes down to this neurochemistry. We get stuck in this feeding cycle of highs and lows, and it's, it's just bouncing back and forth between pain and pleasure. Yeah. And I think that when you know, when you understand that cycle and like you said, you're able to, you know, mindfully and consciously engage in alcohol consumption and you're aware of those effects. And you're also aware of the fact that, you know, uh, you're not going to get that amount of dopamine release from normal everyday activities and, you know, kind of managing those expectations. I think it can be a little easier to deal with that. But I think in general, majority of people don't understand how that works. So it's like they're not thinking that deep into it of like, oh, you know, I feel like crap today because I drank two days ago and, you know, I have to re-self-regulate. And I think in general, especially with like the amount of trauma that a lot of people go through too, we already have a a really difficult time in self-regulating as it is <laughs> like our nervous yeah, systems. Right. Um, it's like an actual thing that you have to work on. And so, you know, uh, if you don't even know that that requires work, then again, why wouldn't you just tap into something that is really easy to consume that makes you feel better? Yeah. I, I talked about it on one of my recent TikTok videos. It's like what it kind of represents in this other analogy or abstract way is like, imagine the average normal human being, let's say, works a construction job, let's say, and we have to go to work and we have to work like mm -hmm. physical exertion and mental like and at the end of the day, they pay you, let's say, ten dollars, right, that for eight hours of work. OK, you earn that ten dollars by the work that you put in, right? Mm -hmm. Drinking is like going instead of showing up to work, what you do is you go to the store next to your job and you give them a dollar and they just give you ten dollars back mm. for no no work and so imagine if you repeatedly expose somebody to that eventually you would say listen what am i doing going to work over here <laughs> right? i go to this corner <laughs> store i can give them a dollar and they'll just give me ten dollars back with no effort mm -hmm. i don't have to do anything i just wait it's in easy. line it's easy no, no effort. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's what sort of alcohol represents psychologically and emotionally for human beings is this thing where you're hacking your neurochemistry and you're 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 getting instant gratification, either through the instant pursuit of pleasure or through the instant relief of pain with no effort. And yeah. anything that doesn't require effort but gets a result will become addictive by nature eventually mm -hmm. over time. Right. So 
obviously, you know, uh, you have your own coaching program and, and uh, you you make a living by helping people to get get through this process. What what are some strategies that you use to try to help people break that cycle for themselves? Yeah, good question, man. So I have people follow like a very specific kind of lifestyle transformation plan where I've got like this checklist of items that they do. There's 14 of them every single day. Um, and it's really holistic and it focuses on optimizing mind, body, spirit, and neurochemistry. Um, and so they follow a plan while consuming like information that really transforms the way they think about alcohol. Um, and then also, um, not only alcohol, but like their mental and emotional operating system. So they gain a, a more self-aware and intuitive understanding of what's actually going on inside of them so they can begin to self-regulate. Mm. Nice. Love it sounds it. like, uh, yeah, I'm sure. I, I mean, there's a reason why you have a lot of success with that, right? <laughs> it seems like a very well uh, put together program. So yeah, um, and there's a community aspect and accountability mm -hmm. and all that stuff and coaching. Yeah. All, all the important bits of, of trying to maintain sobriety. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's one of the most important things that, you know, through things like AA and, and various other kind of programs that have been the status quo for so long that's missing is the education part of like, why do I, why am I doing this? Why is my brain acting the way it is? Why is it so easy for me to fall into these patterns? And like, you know, I think generally uh, for a lot of people or just in general, the path forward is a lot easier when you have understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it and understanding of yourself, understanding of how your brain works, understanding of how the world in general works. You know, that level of education really helps build your perspective. And when you have perspective, it's a lot easier to make certain decisions, the right decisions. Um, yeah. So I think that that aspect has in the past been been missing on some level uh, in terms of sobriety coaching. But even just in the general population, as you said, like we live in this kind of society where from a young age, through every piece of media that we consume, through school, through college, the government, all of these things, alcohol specifically is something that is viewed as not only okay, but almost necessary for mm. daily life. Um, and, and that's the education that you're, you're born into versus what it really is, is, it, you know, as you said, it's a poison. It, it, it is incredibly unhealthy for your body and granted very small amounts, you know, generally, you know, long-term, probably not that huge of a deal, but most 99% of people don't drink very small, small amounts of alcohol. It's mm -hmm. more than one or two a week, you know? Yeah. So in, in kind of wrap up, we'll kind of just do a couple personal questions. Um, if you could go back in time, you know, you shared your story kind of at the beginning of, of this episode, if you could go back in time and, and change anything about, uh, you know, your life or your story or, you know, tell something to your younger self uh, about what you know now, what would you do? Mm. Yeah, I don't think I would change anything, you know, if it's like butterfly effect type type stuff. Um I'm at a place in my life now where like 
I'm, I'm so grateful for how things worked out that I, I believe it was all divinely ordered specifically in divine timing with all of it to lead me to exactly be here in this moment. And I'm feel very aligned and fortunate to be where I am now. So had I changed anything in the past, maybe it wouldn't have led me here. I could say, well, I wish my dad didn't die, but who knows? Maybe I'd be in jail or dead if he was, you know, stayed, stayed alive. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. So I don't think I would change anything. Um, I'm grateful for how it all turned out. I'm grateful for the pain and the challenges and the trauma because it turned me into the, the person that I am today. Mm. Um, what would I say to my younger self? I would probably... Um, I'd probably tell him to worry less and to recognize like it's <laughs> you're going to make it. It's going to be OK. You know, just yeah. relax. Like there's, there's something bigger going on here and you're just kind of part of the ride. Um, yeah. Surrender a little bit. I think that's a pretty common thing. I remember in my 20s, you know, it's like we just have this huge pressure in society yeah. to figure our lives out. You know, you got to right. figure out what you're going to do for your job. You got to figure out if you're getting married, if you're going to have kids, there's all this time limit on it. And then I right. think when you get into your thirties, you start to understand that maybe it's not that serious. And then I think even now being in my forties, it's just like, Oh, you know, like there's so much more and like life doesn't stop at 40. And so like, yeah, you know, you can relax a little bit and you're not going to figure it out in your 20s. And it's such a like everyone's like, oh, I wish I was 20 again. I'm like, oh, I would never go back to my 20s. <laughs> I like where I'm at now. <laughs> I yeah. feel like uh, I feel like oftentimes, you know, we have this perspective of of. I'm going to scrap that. I completely forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> but. Yeah, yeah, that's gone. That thought is it's <laughs> off in the wind. Um, do yeah. you have any any big projects or anything you're really excited about that you're working on? Yeah, so um, you know, for the last eighteen months or so, as I've been running Stop Drinking Coach, um, it's just been me, and I've been doing one on one coaching, and that's how my program's been structured. Moving into 2024, I'm going to move. Um, primarily to a, a group coaching program. Oh, nice. um, and it'll continue to be hybrid to, to some degree. I'll still probably do one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, but yeah, moving more towards a group coaching model. So, you know, that'll be more accessible for more people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the only yeah. way for my message and education and program to get out, to scale, to, to reach mm -hmm. more people. Um, so I'm going to be moving towards a group coaching model. I'm going to be be bringing in some co-coaches to facilitate and support that. Um, really excited about some of the people I'm, I'm going to be bringing in. One specifically who was my coach during the process, um, who's an absolute just master, incredible human being, which um, I'm really excited about. And in 2024, I plan to um, get more, get back on the content game. Um, hmm. Because what, what I discovered is my real zone of genius is communicating this stuff and mm -hmm. podcasts and creating content and, and reaching more people. Um, I don't necessarily need to be the one meeting face to face with people checking yeah. in. Like I have a course that I've built with incredible assets. I mean, my vision is to have um, 
you know, a total human transformation resource library that covers everything from addiction to mindset, to healing and trauma, your inner child, creating your future self, you know, aligning your values, tools, strategies to regulate your nervous system. So the vision is ultimately to, you know, create the most successful, um, you know, alcohol recovery program, but eventually maybe it'll be, you know, go deeper into just addiction as a whole in the future. That's super exciting. Nice. I'm excited for you. <laughs> yeah, that's very excited. Yeah. I remember what my thought was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just essentially that like, you know, when you, when as a kid, you t people tend to, we, we tend to think that adults have everything together and they know what they're doing. And then you become an adult and you realize nobody knows what they're doing and everything yeah. is just made up, uh, you know? And so we're all just kind of trying to, trying to do our best with what we have but but i mean yeah. really nobody you know nobody knows yeah. nobody has it figured about. out <laughs> yeah yeah no one has it figured out they think that you know some people might think that they do and they'll, they'll yeah. you know preach and teach and, and say what they what they believe it is but there's so many different lifestyles and so many different people and and the world is so diverse that like yeah no one knows what they're doing we're all just kind of mm -hmm. we're yeah. all just kind of here trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say that, man. I remember being as a kid, specifically having that thought, you know, having adults, mm -hmm. they look like gods, mm -hmm. you know, they have jobs and drive cars and they know what the government does. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, one day I'm an adult and I'm going to have it figured out, figured, all figured out. And like you trusted and thought that they did. And I remember specifically being like 19, kind of becoming an adult, looking around and being like, I thought like 20 year olds were these adults. And <laughs> as I look around, like nobody has any clue what's going on. Everything, and then, like, everything's a best guess, basically. You become Everyone, an adult and you realize nobody knows what the government does. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, yeah, just the rabbit hole keeps going. And yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, lastly, where, where can people, uh, where can people find you? What? Yeah. So um, I would say the first place and best place is going to be my podcast. So if you go to Spotify or Apple and look up the stop drinking coach, or if you type in quit drinking or stop drinking, I'm usually right up there. Number one. Um, so that's probably going to be the best resource. I've got over 30 episodes that are similar to this, where I go in, mm -hmm. you know, anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour plus going really, really deep around all these topics and this journey. So that's probably going to be the most valuable. The second place is my TikTok. I've got like 280,000 or so followers there and about 300 short form videos ranging from 30 seconds to three minutes where I cover a lot of these different topics as well. Um, yeah. My Instagram and, and everything is under the handle Stop Drinking Coach or The Stop mm -hmm. Drinking Coach. So my website, www.thestopdrinkingcoach.com. Um, I'm also on YouTube under Stop Drinking Coach or The Stop Drinking Coach. So yeah, I'm, I'm it's pretty much kind of the same across the board. Awesome. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, it, it's been, uh, it's been awesome having you on and, uh, what a great conversation. We, we, uh, hope to see you again. Yeah. Yeah. I really we appreciate it. this. I Thank you. you. <laughs> I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been great. Thank you.